Wildness has suffered as as humans have suffered, and I don't think it's too far of a leap to say, well, you know, as we've mistreated human beings, as we've mistreated nature, that there's a connection there for us to pay attention to, that there's a consciousness there that we need to hear. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast about the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. From his earliest days growing up in the Piedmont forests and fields of Edgefield, South Carolina, our guest, Dr. Joseph Drew Lanham, dreamed of flight. As he writes in his beautiful and deeply moving memoir, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. This longing to join the aerial journeys of the Blue Jays that stole his grandmother's pecans and the crows that invaded his father's cornfield led to Dr. Lanham's lifelong love and dedication to birds, to wildness, and to exploring what it means to be a rare bird, a black man in a field that is overwhelmingly white, and what it means to find freedom through birds on land where his ancestors were once enslaved. While the cardboard wings he made as a child never achieved the skyward paths of the feathered beings he studies, His work, both academic and literary, has uplifted and inspired people around the world and elevated and illuminated conversations about race, nature, history, freedom, and the power of birds. In Dr. Lanham's field of wildlife ecology, loss and hope are yoked. Since 1970, scientists estimate that 3 billion North American birds, nearly one in every three, have vanished, a staggering loss that includes many backyard species that we have long taken for granted. Sparrows, warblers, finches, blackbirds. In his research, Dr. Lanham is focused on the impacts of forestry and other human activities on the lives and disappearance of birds, butterflies, and other small forest creatures. You don't hear and see these animals, Dr. Lanham has said. You feel them. And when they're gone, their absence is akin to the absence of a lover or a friend. At the same time that he has advanced scientific understanding of wild animals, Dr. Lanham has extensively explored and written about the deep and often overlooked connections between how we treat nature and how we treat our fellow humans. In 2013, he published a groundbreaking essay called Nine Rules for the Black Bird Watcher that conveys the very real dangers that he and blackbirders face, dangers brought to the national spotlight earlier this year from Christian Cooper's experience birding in Central Park. Racism and driving other creatures to extinction, Dr. Lanham says, are both built on the corrupt human belief that some are worthier than others. For humans and animals alike, he said, the fine line between life and death is defined by how intensely we care. Yet hope is also a driving force behind much of Dr. Lanham's work, whether in conservation or his exploration of race, science, and the land. Hope is the thing with feathers, Emily Dickinson famously wrote, and it's hope for nature's ability to heal wounds, and for the power of art and experience to inspire people of all colors to understand the moral obligation we have to treat the living with care that propels Dr. Lanham's prolific writing, teaching, and fieldwork. As an alumni distinguished professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson University, poet and author, he has melded heart and mind to, as he writes, 
move others to find themselves magnified in nature, whomever and whatever they might be. We're honored and delighted to talk with him today. Dr. Lanham, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you, Vivecca, for having me. You write in beautiful detail in your memoir, The Home Place, about Edgefield, South Carolina, where you grew up. Can you tell us about where you came from, the home place, and the ecosystem there that consisted of your family, but also the animals, birds, the land, and the stories tying them all together? Yeah, well, you know, it was home, as as the book says. It's a place that, for me, nurtured all of this love that I have for wildness. But as a as a child growing up, it was really all about this nurturing place, my grandmother's house, where I spent more than half of my time, the ramshackle, as I call it in the book, in my parents' house, the ranch, where I went to become more modern on a daily basis and to go to school. But all of that was nestled within this this whole um, a family farm, roughly 200 acres or so, forests, fields, pastures, creeks, springs. All of that then was surrounded by the National Forest, this amazing place, really sort of an island of wildness within a sea of greater wildness is how I like to think of it. And so I was just sort of a a boy marooned on this island of wildness within this greater sea of it. And having parents who were teachers and scientists and farmers and a grandmother who in many ways was, I think, a mystic and and looked at the natural world in that way, all shaped who I was and, and who I would ultimately become. And as I get older and further removed from boyhood, I think I get closer to it. In some ways, because I, I, I get to live some of those dreams of of thinking like birds, hopefully, and in some ways maybe benefiting them. So although the, the cardboard wings all, always failed me, there's some redemption in being able to work for birds in various ways to make sure that they keep flying. What are some of your earliest memories of birds? What drew you to birds in particular? earliest memories of birds really was that they were everywhere. They were just mm-hmm. ever present. And I can remember my seeing my grandmother on cold winter mornings when maybe there was a heavy, heavy frost. And I always pretended that frost was snow because we didn't get snow that often. <laughs> but I can remember those heavily frosted mornings when she would take a handful of grits and grits were a staple for us. You know, almost every breakfast you had grits, but she would pour some out of that bag, a handful, and she would toss those grits out into that frost and feed the birds that she calls snowbirds. They were all snowbirds and sparrows to her. They weren't dark-eyed juncos and, and song sparrows or white-throated sparrows or chipping sparrows. They were all these birds that God kept his eye on. And so I can remember standing behind her and watching her throw those grits out into the frost and snow because she said she pitied 
those birds. So sparrows have always held this special fascination for me. And, and I realize now, all these years later, my grandmother, Mamatha, was the first person that I ever saw feed birds. So that that stuck with me in many ways, I think. Even to today, I, I feed birds in the backyard and, and sit and watch them and wonder about them. But beyond her back porch, there were bobwhite quail that flushed from these these pretty predictable places from these overgrown ditches and these thickets of brambles and briars and sumac to have these little brown bundles of feathers rocket out from almost underfoot. Even though you knew it's that was where they were, it was always a pleasant surprise to have a half dozen birds rocket off from underneath you and then down the pasture slope into the woods edge and to hear them calling to reassemble. And then by the time I would get to the top of the hill, if it was spring or summer, the Eastern King birds, birds that my grandmother used to call bee martins, those, those fly catchers are pretty territorial and they would dive at my head and Twitter above me in the way that kingbirds do, sort of chattering to protest my intrusion. And, and so at that point, I would take off running past the top of the hill down to the downside of the hill towards my parents' house and maybe push another covey of, of quail from the hillside there. There were always crows around. And on spring mornings, I was usually hearing turkeys gobble, so there was no shortage of birds to inspire. There was no shortage of of feathered things to sort of fuel the fascination. So it was a target-rich environment for my heart and just a place that, even as I think of it now and what it's become in ways, I, I think of the idyllic sort of place that it was, at least for me, Different people can have different interpretations of, of what that means, but I can close my eyes and I can make the walk that I made, it seems like a thousand times as a kid, I can make it a thousand and one times when I close my eyes and, and to see those to see those snowbirds that were being fed, to see the bobwhite quail that flew from underfoot, to hear the kingbirds, the bee martins over my head, to hear wild turkeys gobbling in the bottom, all of that is is fresh. And you write about how, in many ways, you were not content to have your own relationship to the birds be confined to land. You were always aspiring to flight, you know, with the cardboard wings and climbing up to heights and, and jumping off to experience that second or two of your own flight what is it about birds and birding and flight that you've always found so elevating and uplifting? Well, really, this, the tethering, the untethering from the daily weight of human existence. So as, as a boy, it was this idea that maybe one day there would be enough of an updraft or enough speed and thrust for me to finally take off. And, you know, I never thought 
about where I would go. I just knew that if the <laughs> wind took me, that I, I would soar and maybe I would circle the home place for a while, but then I would find some other place to be. So that whole idea of freedom, of complete freedom from all the things that bind us to our existence as human beings. So back then it was escaping chores, whether that was sweeping floors or cutting wood or doing homework or feeding cows or hogs or cutting grass. It, it meant freedom. It meant being different, really. I didn't know any other kids that could fly. I knew that there were other kids that were trying. And I always believed that I was going to be the one who made it, <laughs> that I would go into school on a Monday morning and be able to brag about flying, that I would somehow find that magic combination of speed, thrust, and, and lift to make me the one that transcended that boundary that birds so artfully and easily did that I would do that. That was it for me. I think it's still the thing. I still watch birds fly and I, I know the principles behind flight and, and the, the airfoils that feathers form and the motions, the oaring motions of birds' wings and hollow bones and, and all of those things that make most birds these wonderful flying machines, but yet and still to watch a cardinal come to a feeder, sit there, crack seeds with that heavy bill, but then to fly away and through a hedge and to fold its wings to pass through a hole that before maybe you hadn't seen, but that bird knows it's there and it's just as visible to it as a trail would be to those of us with the propensity for walking or hiking or getting around earthbound. That hole in that hedge is just as evident to that cardinal as a sidewalk is to me. So I marvel at that, that ability to see what I can't see, to do what I can't do. And so I've always been that kind of person that told that I can't do something challenged, then that's my challenge to do it, to try. So as often as I was told that you can't fly, little boys can't, they can't fly. Understanding early on who Icarus was and all of those people beyond myth and fable who thought that they could fly and failed. I always believed that I would be the one who made it. And each time I did it for a, a millisecond or two, it felt like I had. That I had achieved something that others for millennia had not been able to achieve, but then the ground would come up to meet me and boom, there I was right back where everybody else started. You have successfully transcended so many other types of boundaries throughout your career. It's so rare to find, unfortunately, professors of wildlife ecology who are people of color in the United States. You really have to look for them. And then once you became a professor, you transcended many more boundaries of what a professor of wildlife ecology is supposed to do in expanding your work to include poetry, studying how people relate to land and writing you know, absolutely beautiful poetry and prose. Your book reminded me of a quote by E.O. Wilson, which is something to the effect of, scientists must be both good bookkeepers and good poets, but the public often only sees the former. 
the flight doesn't work with the cardboard wings, of course, but how did that same sort of attitude impact your career choices as you went on to become an expert in birds and wildlife ecology in a field where there were very few, I imagine, mentors or examples that looked like you? Well, Viveka, really, it was um, it was a long migration, really. And there were a lot of storms and headwinds to ground me. So that free flight didn't occur for a while. So expectations are one of the anchors, one of the headwinds, I guess, more appropriately from a migratory metaphor that that can ground us. And so the expectations that people had of me as a young man of color really impacted what it was I was able to do, how I was able to go forward as a career. And so I I spent a a good bit of time grounded in sort of this place of of expectation and meeting the expectations and, and being challenged really to excel in things that I, I liked, but I did not love. And so I was good at math, good enough. I was good at science and I loved the science, um, especially biology and ecology, some chemistry and some physics. But then to have others sort of set the path for you to say, okay, this is where you go. This is how you achieve. This is who you are supposed to be. That was a serious headwind. And that in the times that I was able to fly, that blew me off course and blew me towards engineering. As I talk about in the book for quite a while, I was, as an undergrad, I was in engineering for three and a half years. I mean, that's (laughs) with the four years that we think we're going to spend in undergrad, that was, you know, I'd, I'd bought most of that time. So on that day that I just could not take not loving what I did anymore, I turned and I I sort of recast my route and I took off and there were tailwinds behind me. There were people who supported that change, but there were also people who didn't support that change because they didn't understand what ornithology was or zoology or ecology. How how would I make a living at that? How is anyone going to give me a steady paycheck to study birds? that didn't exist. But I've always had the belief, even if I didn't have the courage to live it at first, that passion will pave the way. And that's a large part of of what happened for me, that, that passion became both sort of lift and thrust in ways beyond expectations that otherwise would have kept me grounded or limited in terms of the range that I could cover as a human being. And in that finding of of passion, in that living of it, things became easier in ways. I mean, it, it was easier to wake up in the morning. It was easier to go to class. It was easier to study for a test. It was easier to think of a life and love beyond a life that where I didn't have any passion. And so birds, birds were, were always there. Even when I wasn't studying them formally, I was noticing them and keeping them in this place, sort of just stoking 
the fires, I suppose, that would eventually send me in the direction that, that I took. But all of that is important, I think, um, for folks as they struggle with careers, whether it's at the beginning and trying to understand what it is that you want to do or maybe some change that you want to make in your life. I, I always tell people if I had not listened to my heart, I would not have found this place of passion. And as 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 Dr. Wilson says, as E.O. Wilson says, that that bookkeeper part, that linear, that left brain part of us is important as scientists. But ultimately, what made me want to be a scientist was my love of birds was wondering where those snowbirds came from. It was wondering how those bobwhite quail survived from one thicket to the next. It was understanding that those eastern kingbirds were making these flights from tropical places every year to be at the home place. And, and that was the beginning of the, of the scientist, of the ornithologist, but that would not have happened without the love. And the difference in my life is that in loving birds and in loving ecology and, and the understanding of how things, of how living things interact with their environment, that was how I grew up. That was fishing in the creeks. That was grazing cattle. It was watching my father plow the fields and, and understanding that food didn't magically appear on plates, that you had to work for it, and that sometimes things had to die for us to eat. So it was survival to me. And, and there are things that I did well as an engineering student and that I still use. I don't regret now, in hindsight, that time that I spent trying to become something that others wanted me to be because I, I use I use those things. I use that experience as motivation, but I also use some of what I learned. So it was important. But that poet component, that second part of who it is that we are, that spurs us on to want to know more and to be comfortable with what we don't know. I, I think it's amazing. Um, what we now understand about birds and bird migration and bird behavior that we've learned in all sorts of, of ways that, in large part, technology has allowed us to learn, which someone somewhere ultimately had to engineer, right? But then that so much of that goes into what I write as a poet and as a scientist, but then to be able to write about what we don't know, to be able to talk about the wonder and the mystery of migration or of birdsong, all of that thrills me to want to know more and sometimes to just sit in consideration of, of what I don't know and the wonderful creatures that birds are. So that's sort of how that all comes together for me. And, and anymore, I can't make a separation between um, the science and the sensual, really. They're, they're all the same.
And in addition to this comfort and, and exploration in your writing of, of what you don't know, you've also written beautifully about and, and spent a long time studying things that are no longer knowable because they've been lost. So, for example, you've dwelled on the loss of extensive longleaf pine landscapes and of the Carolina parakeet and what this says about us as humans and, and what it means for us and our future. This in many ways, is a very devastating moment for birds and for nature generally. As we mentioned earlier, there was a science study showing that 3 billion birds in North America have been lost since the 1970s. You've mentioned how your office is full of carved and painted portraits of birds that no longer exist, and that you harbor a special place for these gone birds, as you call them, including the Carolina parakeet. Could you tell us about some of these gone birds and your relationship to them, especially the Carolina parakeet, and what they mean for you? Sure, Jennifer. For me, those gone birds, they're reminders, obviously, of, of what was, but they're also warnings of what could be. So though they are are gone, they are, are with me they they're with us and i and i hope that they are 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 with most of us that somehow in our memories we're able to save space just as we would for a loved one gone on to remember their beauty and why we were attracted to them or why we wanted to be with them and to have them in our presence so from my earliest remembering and and falling in love with birds I can remember this after school special <laughs> that I, I happened upon one day after school. And um, it was an animated version of a book called Last of the Curlews by, by Fred Bodsworth, I believe is the author. And, and that cartoon that portrayed this, the life of this single Eskimo curlew and its struggles, that as much as any live bird that I ever saw, I think, helped me begin to think about conservation. It helped me to begin to think about the last being gone forever. That extinction wasn't just this thing for dinosaurs, that it was this process, this terrible process that could be wrought by human hands to cause things not to exist anymore. And so that Eskimo curlew then brought me to this place. And I remember there was this book that, that, I, that I ordered. And it was more of an academic text. And, and, I, and I'm not sure even where I ordered it, but it had these, these accounts of not just Eskimo curlews, but of great auks and Labrador ducks and passenger pigeons, and ivory-billed woodpeckers, and heath hens, and Carolina parakeets. And all of those birds intrigued me, the mystery of who and what they were, what their lives had been like, sort of the, the whole idea of these birds ghosting, um, as it were, from our existence intrigued me. And Carolina parakeets I think, grabbed hold of me in part because while I would imagine ivory-billed woodpeckers on the home place from time to time and 
it seemed like a place as as the author James Kilgo said that was deep enough for ivory bills. I always imagined that Carolina parakeets would somehow just magically appear. And it was a bird to me, and maybe because it held in part the name of a place that I call home, that I sort of adopted them, that they became um, my gone birds more than any other gone birds could become. And I began to see those birds as the intelligent beings that we know, cetacines, parrots, and parakeets and cockatoos and cockatiels. We know those birds are are intelligent, that there is a sentience there that, of course, we measure by human sentience. But then I think we cheat the birds by just comparing them to us. That when you look at the Audubon portrait of Carolina parakeets, that more than any other of the portraits to me, that bird seems to be saying, I see you. I see you out there and I I know who you are. And for all that means and what that bird would have been saying to to Audubon, who would, would have killed many of them to paint them, and, and what that meant for the social structure of the bird that I learned early on that they would circle and squawk and shriek as if mourning fallen comrades, that other birds would fall because they wouldn't abandon those that had already fallen, that parrots have the ability to communicate in ways that entertains humans, certainly, because of mimicry, but then that is beyond that, that they are saying and thinking and doing things that we can't quite get a handle on. And that, to me, is is a definition of wild, sort of beyond our control and our capacity to totally understand what's going on. So the Carolina parakeets that I adopted sort of head and heart, I began to think about the landscapes that they inhabited, and I could not separate the landscapes that they inhabited here in in South Carolina and other places, landscapes that were being changed dramatically by large-scale agriculture that was being that was being carried out by enslaved black peoples many of whom were my ancestors and the ancestors of other family and and friends. And so I could not separate the existence of those gone birds from gone times. So history links them together. And I like to think that as long as we're remembering history and trying not to forget it, to repeat sins of the past like enslavement and institutionalized racism and prejudice, that we also think about the wild things and wild places that we've persecuted, that wildness has suffered as as humans have suffered. And I don't think it's too far of a leap to ask to say, well, 
you know, as we've mistreated human beings, as we've mistreated nature, that there's a connection there for us to pay attention to, that there's a consciousness there that we need to hear. And that as those gone birds, whatever they might be, as they call to us in various ways, whether it's through an Audubon painting or whether it's through something I or someone else has written, that we pay attention to that wild animal history as we pay attention to our own inhumane history to not just nature, but to one another. So all of that, Jennifer and Viveka, comes together for me in pieces like the one that I wrote for Orion Magazine. And, and that was a piece that I think I had wanted to write for decades. That essay, Forever Gone, is just absolutely spectacular and, and stunning. I, ca I can't recommend it highly enough to people to read. You write in that piece at one point about how being a wildlife ecologist is to surround yourself by loss, because whether it be recognizing the loss of animals like the parakeet or the decline of current species like sparrows or everyday birds in decline today. And that inherently there's there's an element of mourning that's almost built into the job that you're driven into this field by love, but you're necessarily exposed to the sadness of seeing these these animals and these places that you love change and decline. I'm just I'm curious, how do you reckon with that? And is poetry something that you turn to and in, in writing early in your career to meld and meditate on these big questions that animate your work? Or was it something you found later on after after decades of work as a scientist? You know, I, I, I've always in, enjoyed poetry. <laughs> I mean, we, we all start off kind of uh, learning iambic pentameter, right? So for me, I, I've always loved words. And probably part of the poet in me comes from all of the reading that my grandmother had me do. And, and a lot of that reading out of the Bible. And so, you know, while there there is a, a, a lot there to interpret, there was some beautiful writing from time to time. And I think ultimately who we become as writers is what we read. And so from those early days of, of reading, as my grandmother would have me read, but then into school and intending to orient towards what people had written about birds, and seeing some of the early descriptions of birds, that probably had some influence on me. And then um, in, in high school, I began to fall into the transcendentalists and, and considered myself in some sort of way aligned with people like Emerson and Thoreau and, and Whitman. So that's that's part of the the influence in regards to you know, that, that amalgam of, of love, loss, mourning, and a savior syndrome, which I think is, is what defines us as conservation ecologists. I mean, that's all of who we are. I mean, we're in it because we love it. We mourn because we're losing it. And we work hard because we want to save it. And finding at some point within that trifecta of love, mourning, and loss, 
hopefully in some of the saving comes celebration and the celebration comes through hopefully sometimes in the writing. That's part of my celebration is to write, is to be able to talk about it, is to be able to hopefully sometimes bring some some idea of the wonder of some rare bird to more people than might ever see it. But especially now in, in times like these when so many of us are sequestered and quarantined and 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 limiting our our movement for the benefit of not just ourselves but of others, that this intense watching in our backyards or in a city park or from an apartment window that that hopefully the slice of blue sky or the clouds or the bird that you see pass by becomes something to celebrate. It becomes some difference in these daily lives of the same and, and often bad news. So for for me, that celebration, that saving celebration comes in a poem. It comes in sometimes in just a word. <laughs> and awe has been that latest word. I've, I've been using this this word orgasm because I was watching swallowtail kites fly <laughs> the other day, and it, it just it's this out of body experience to watch that bird fly and to play the wind and its wings in concert. There's no other word for it. And I write a lot about swallowtail kites, but I always feel like I fail them because there just aren't words to to <laughs> describe what they are and how they exist and the manner in which they appear and disappear is thrilling to me. And so I try to write about it as as much as I mourn the loss of Carolina parakeets and other gone birds to be able to write to that loss and to that mourning is somewhat of an exorcism. It's an ode. It's a, it's a monument to those birds. And that if, if enough people read it and it moves them enough, then maybe they have some deep feeling that comes out that helps them understand how important it is to love and respect nature in a way that doesn't make more gone birds that at some point in time someone isn't writing about the last robin that was ever seen that celebration of words is important to me i would like to think that for many artists and i have quite a few artist friends that that a brush stroke or the framing of, of some photograph or the carving or sculpture or a dance or a song, that those are celebrations, that those are celebrations. And for birds, for me, the best that I can do um, is, is words. And everyone, of course, deserves to get to partake in that celebration equally. And we've seen this year, particularly in, in response to Christian Cooper's and Amy Cooper's encounter in Central Park, a renewed attention to how in birding, this is not the case necessarily for all people and particularly for black people, if, if it's not safe for them 
to go out due to this systemic racism and bird in the way that it's, you know, easy and without question possible for, for white people. And you wrote, you wrote an amazing piece, which I think again, combines both this very clear and thoughtful analysis of what's going on with the problem here with a real celebration of the animals themselves. Um, but you wrote a piece following up to your original piece on rules for blackbird watching for Vanity Fair this May entitled Nine New Revelations for the Black American Bird Watcher. And I was curious if you might be willing to read that piece for us. Sure. I thought this was yet another <laughs> fantastic, fantastic essay that was both so powerful and, and simultaneously like the rest of your work infused with, with humor and love for these creatures. Sure. If I may, I'll, you know, I wrote a good portion of this on the, I think it was the Saturday before Christian Cooper's assault. And I call it an assault because that's what it was. But as, as revelation number one, hooded warblers are lucky. They can wear hoodies and no one asks questions or feels threatened. Vigilante Americans don't mobilize to make citizens arrests if they loiter in a strange shrub for too long. And so that first revelation came as I was watching this hooded warbler sing. It's such a beautiful little bird, but it wears this hood. And and I thought about that hood and I thought about Trayvon Martin all those years ago, but also all of those murders ago. And so that revelation on that Saturday turned into these others. Revelation number two. No one denies the eye-bending beauty of a painted bunting by saying, I don't see color. Revelation number three. Roadrunners don't get gunned down for jogging through neighborhoods, do they? Number four. Why are some immigrants accepted and others not? Just asking for a European sterling. Revelation number five. Double-crested cormorants are insulted at still being known as nigger geese by some. Can they at least get Negro as a nomen? Number six. Why do people cry and set music to far away murmurations, that swirling, whirling, wheeling, aerial ballet of flocking birds, but then hate the very same birds up close, asking for the same European starlings from number four and lots of befuddled blackbirds? Number seven. Wondering if some white people tell crows and ravens how impressed they are with their articulate intelligence, as if blackness precludes the confluence. Wondering if the corvids tire of it. I do. Number eight. Has there ever been a white bird as hated as a black or brown one? Revelation number nine. Birds don't mind if we misidentify them, because they know who they are without our labels. What they truly despise is the disrespect of habitat destruction, pollution, hordes of free-roaming outdoor cats, 
in the catalog of stupid things humans do to make their already difficult lives harder. Nine new revelations. Thanks for asking. Thank you for reading that incredibly powerful piece. And it, it came at this particular moment, but really encompasses dynamics that have unfortunately been at play for centuries and experiences that really transcend human prejudices and also pertain to our treatment of the natural world and the way that, as you've written about, extinction by human hands is a sin, but racism is, is no different. It's, as you've said, callousness built on judgmental whim, and the way that we're, we're treating the natural world is very intimately related to the way that we're treating each other. So thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. Obviously, many things need to be done at the societal level to ensure that assaults like Christian Cooper's and experiences that you've had in the past, where you have with good reason felt physically unsafe while doing your job and birding in wild places, do not occur. What needs to be done at the level of institutions, of universities, of bird conservation groups, and what can individual people do to help advance a future where everyone can celebrate and share in the joys that birds bring equally? Well, I... <sighs> It's the multi-billion dollar question, right? And, and a 401-year-old question for Black Americans. I, I think for me, and, and having had a lot of experience with um, sort of organized birding through national organizations and such, I, I think the important thing is to walk the walk. And walking the walk, you know, beyond a photo op or beyond a week. It means, and as important and critical as Black Birders Week was, what I hope we are able to do, and that was genius, um, from those young folks leveraging social media in a way that brought so much attention. What we have to do beyond the week or the month or the year is to leverage good that we can sustain. And so walking the walk to me means taking risks. It means, guess what? There are going to be donors that have to be offended if they cannot understand the links between conservation, social, and environmental justice. To me, they're all interconnected. And if you look at many of the root causes for racism and for biases and for disparities that poor people and communities of color are, are often redlined into these places where the environment is not as nice, where the water isn't as clean, that it may not even be drinkable, that climate change isn't just the concern of drowning polar bears, but it's the concern of of black and brown children who can't breathe the air. And it's the, the, and it's the same air that is warming air that's melting the polar bear's ice flow. So to bring these things together is the critical work, I think. It's the, the work of, of stepping outside of logo, of stepping outside of old mission to make new missions. It's the work of, of being brave enough 
as my friends at Bird Note did, to take that initial nine rules for the Black Bird Watcher and to make a video of it. And I know that they suffered some slings for that. I know that it was not the most popular choice, but there were people all the way out there in Seattle who cared enough about this thing, this issue, these issues to say, okay, we're going to take a chance on it. And so to take those chances, to be risky, to move beyond your expectation. We talked about expectations earlier. That's what I think it's going to take by and large for us to move forward as humans, to move outside of expectation, to not just see someone as black or white or whatever color, but to get to know them. And so for me, again, bird identification has turned into more than just identifying the bird and say, oh, that's just another cardinal. But if you sit and you look that there are differences in a cardinal's cardinalness, <laughs> that there's, there are these differences in the redness, there are these differences in crests, there are these differences in behavior, that there are these differences in all these, these ways that make every cardinal unique. And so I, I think taking those risks and taking the binoculars down for a while and saying, look, there are people in these landscapes. I mentioned swallowtail kites. One of the places that I go that many people go to see swallowtail kites in South Carolina and in a place like the Black Belt of Alabama, Hale County, Alabama, there, there are people in these places who have been overlooked, who've been underfunded, and yet we'll go there and watch the beauty of swallowtailed kites and Mississippi kites and maybe see other birds and leave with our photographs and birds on lists, but not have left any good behind. So... I ask that on an individual basis that bird watchers, that birders become sometimes bird watchers, that we watch more intensely individuals to understand the differences. But then we also let ourselves get caught up in awe so that we don't rush from one place to the other and forget that there are people that we leave behind. And those things, I think, are doable. They're doable. And not forget the gone birds not forget the history of places where humans suffered, bled, sweat, cried, died, um, so that others could be absurdly wealthy, that a country could be built, that there are lands that we watch birds on, that sovereign nations, sovereign first nations were, were stewarding. So, I think for us to not just think about birds, not just think about birds' names, but to think about who those birds are, to think about the context of their existences, and understand that in the end, it's, it's all the same air, same water, same soil, same fate that we share. And, and Rachel Carson <laughs> taught us that, and, and others have spoken to it. But I always like to think that we're connected in that way, that the same air the birds fly through that I tried to fly through, it's the same air that we all have to breathe. 
we're ultimately all downstream from somebody else, but we're also all upstream from someone else. That all the food that we depend upon grows in, in the limited soil that we have, and we can't afford to pollute it. So those connections to me are what need to be made, that they need to be made not just by the people who are supposed to make them, but that that organizations that we don't think of as social justice or environmental justice or just justice, <laughs> that we connect that to birds in some way. After all, I mean, there are people that are inspired by a bald eagle to think of freedom, right? Um, there are people that are inspired by these symbols. So cast your own symbols. Look at the birds in your backyards that come and go at will and, and think of their lives and then try intertwining, try braiding your life, our lives into their lives. And in that way, I think we begin to approach not just sympathy, but empathy. And, and when we approach empathy, then we're not only acting for self, we're acting selflessly. And if we can do that, then I think we can go a long way into being better, not in being perfect, not in being perfect, but in being better than we are. Mm -hmm. And that, that really gets to one of the things I found incredibly moving and striking about your work, which is your ability to illuminate loss and uncomfortable truths that have remained buried or obscured for many people, while also finding and bringing out hope. So, for example, you've written a lot about how often the land is viewed as a refuge, a safe space. But for many people, it holds a deeply troubling legacy stemming from some of the most shameful parts of America's history. But at the same time, you've written about how Black men have been pioneers in the land and the sky and the celebration that can be found there. For example, the Tuskegee Airmen and the Buffalo Soldiers who were out west over 100 years ago finding refuge and hope in the landscape. And this dichotomy between loss and hope in your work is so powerful. And I was wondering if you could speak to what it is, especially in this time of, of quarantine, environmental degradation and, and turmoil and uncertainty for so many people. What is it that is giving you hope? Hope is a rare bird these days. But, um, you know, it's conversations. It's conversations with people who share a lot of, of what I love in terms of wildness or birds or justice, equality. It's conversations with people who share those things, but who may not look anything like me. It's meeting people in those ways such that we leave the conversation having learned more about what we have in common than what separates us, but yet understanding the importance of our differences. That gives me hope. Birds give me hope because they are, again, ever-present in my life, and, and I depend on them. I'm, I'm addicted, really. There's this 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 dependency that I have, this dependence that I have on birds that it, it's what sustains me on many days. I, I spent 
early portions of the pandemic, just sitting in the backyard, just watching the birds come and go and watching migrating rose-breasted grosbeaks come through the yard or hearing the first red-eyed vireo of the year or looking up and seeing a merlin streaking through my little skyscape right above our tiny backyard. And there was a hopefulness in that. And then it would be dampened by the news of Ahmed Arbery or Brianna Taylor or George Floyd or and so hope is is a practice. <laughs> it's a practice. And I call it the rare bird. And like any rare bird, you gotta look for it. You gotta look for it. And so daily I'm looking for hope. I'm looking for opportunities to be happy, to be joyful. And sometimes that happens in a conversation with family or or a friend or Sometimes it happens in seeing a swallowtail kite do things that no being of this earth should be able to do. So between those conversations that lift me and the birds that that I, I vicariously fly with, those are the places that I find joy. And then I, I try to write as often as I can to those convergences and, and all of that at the end of the day, has hopefully added up to some hope. Well, we we don't want to close, Dr. Lennon, without ha- asking you if you're willing to please read one of your poems, which I found is a terrific source of hope. And there's one in particular that I loved that we'd welcome hearing other ones if you have a different <laughs> one in mind. But the one that I was thinking of was is entitled Ren R.E.M. from your book of poetry, Sparrow Envy. I would be happy to read Ren Rem. Fleeting dreams pass on morning's first light. Mist lifting off a mental bridge to nowhere probable, but all points beyond possible. Reality is the wren that wakes to each sun's rising, with only the moment before it. No plans to skulk or explore the next darkest crevice or crack. It sings, heart full to the limits of the bounds it knows. The rotting woodpile in the northeast corner, the honeysuckle tangle westward, satisfied in that half-acre universe, it sings to meet the day. Tucks its wings satisfied in some second of accomplishment. It scolds a plan and flits away. A wanderer in the present tense. Future perfect does not exist. The past makes little sense. That I should live as wisely as Wren's is lesson one. Carpe diem ad infinitum. Dr. Lanham, thank you so much for sharing your words with us and and for being our guest today. Jennifer and Viveka, thank you so much for for having me in and allowing me to talk about about what I love. This is um this is a hopeful moment for the day. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Lanham. And when we when this episode is posted, we'll be sure to link to um to your poetry and to your articles and to your book, um, and to your recent pieces as well, which all of which are, are well worth reading and terrific things to bring to bring hope and new perspective 
to quarantine for all of us. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Drew Lanham and his work. Thanks for listening.